Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning in to my podcasts. I've had so much fun doing them. I only wish that I'd started recording my lacrosse conversations like 25 or 30 years ago. Now, if you like these podcasts, you will love the content I've created in the JM3 coaches training programs and the academies. Whether you're a coach or a player or a parent, there's so much great information for you guys. I've done this content for men's lacrosse and women's lacrosse, for box lacrosse, field lacrosse, youth lacrosse. And the great news is I've created a seven day free trial. So if you're tired of endlessly searching the internet for great content, just go to www.jm3sports.com slash free trial. And you can get access to all of the content I've created for free for seven days. Trust me, when you take a look at it, you're going to want more. Almost everybody gets hooked. All right, enjoy the rest of the podcast. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Jim Stagnita to the Philosophy Podcast. Jim is the head coach for the PLL Whip Snakes and is also a founder and partner in the MVP Development Group. Jim uh, and I have known each other for a while. I'm a big fan and really excited to have you on the show. How you doing, Jim? Great, Jamie. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Awesome, man. So uh, how's life post-championship? Um, you know what I've tried to do, and it, it, I think it comes with age, is I've really tried to enjoy it. Um, yeah. You know, I've tried to celebrate it with the guys. You know, you don't uh, – you realize, I mean, my first college coaching job, I went to the Final Four in my first year back at Penn with Tony Seaman. And I remember him telling me before the – you know, the night before the game, he said – this doesn't happen very often. So, you know, make sure you enjoy it. Now it's my first year of coaching. So I assumed it was going to happen. Oh. And, um, you know, to be, I, I've played in final fours. I've, 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 you know, had teams that were in semifinal games over my career um, on a, you know, on a, on a few occasions, um, never won it. And, uh, you know, so I, uh, I had, you know, I made a, I made a promise that, you know, if I wanted, I was going to enjoy it. I used to, you know, I remember watching, see coaches who won a national championship final four on Sunday, and you've seen this happen, uh, or Monday, and then the next Saturday, they're sitting on a sideline somewhere doing the same exact thing, you know, that we've been doing week in and week out. So uh, I, you know, I've tried to spend time with the, with the players and I, I've tried to, you know, I've really relished it. And I, you know, we're champs until it starts again. So um, really have tried to enjoy it because it was a great accomplishment for the guys and, you know, to be the first one to ever do it in this league with the level of competition and as difficult as it was, I, you know, I really do consider it for my staff and, and my players a really great accomplishment. Yeah, no doubt. Well, we're going to get back to that, but let's uh, flash back. Um, as I love to do with all the folks that come on these podcasts is hear about your lacrosse journey um, as a player, as a coach. Um, it's always fascinating to hear about people's mentors, the people they worked for, the people they played for, the people they coached with. Um, and so um, why don't we just take it back to, uh, to the roots, to East Manila? Uh, yeah. 
in the Syracuse area and then uh, and sort of take us on a little journey? Um, you know, I look back at my story now and I look at, you know, and, and I, I think that um, there just aren't as many like this, but this is the way it was in those days. I grew up really blue collar. I think the claim of fame in East Syracuse was right on the edge of the city of Syracuse. We had the most bars in a, in a three block area um, of any town in, in upstate New York and, and maybe awesome. in the state. Um, you know, shift work, factory work, railroad. Uh, not many people went on to play in college um, at that time. Not many people even left the area to go to college. Most, most stayed local if they did go. And I was fortunate. I was a three-sport athlete. Um, some of my greatest influences, well, some of the people who had the greatest influence on, on my career, Jamie, honestly, were my high school coaches because um, they were all teacher coaches who went to um, teacher colleges. They were Cortland grads. They were Springfield grads. They were in school all the time. My guidance counselor was a coach. Uh, my athletic director was my football coach. My biology teacher was one of my lacrosse coaches. And they had a huge impact on um, because they were, now that I look back, they were so well-rounded in their approach, right, from an education and a, um, and, and, and they were, you know, they were educated in those areas. Um, and I had some decisions to make. I mean, I was a division three, I was a division three football and basketball player and, and had some opportunities at, you know, at the state school level. Um, I was a, a tweener in football, chance to maybe play as an option quarterback, you know, places that, you know, lower one double A. And I really didn't have a lot of direction because nobody in my family went to college. And I really had, had narrowed it down. I was going to go play lacrosse and football at a Division three school in a couple upstate New York schools, like in Ithaca, Portland, I remember were was kind of where I was narrowing it down, possibly Albany at the time. And my guidance counselor called me in and he, he's like, Staggs, I, I have, you know, I have letters and in, in, in requests from schools like Penn, Princeton, Cornell, and Brown. Uh, you need to consider this. And, and I had, you know, the Ivy League and that whole, meant nothing to me. And he uh, made me make the phone calls to make my visits. And I did visit all of those schools. And it was an eye-opener. I had never been to Philly. I had never been to Providence. I'd been to Cornell to watch games because it was up the road. And, you know, it, it opened up a whole completely different world for me. I didn't even start playing lacrosse until my sophomore year in high school. I was a baseball player. No way. Walked off baseball. I was bored. I was tired of getting up once every three innings and having a ball hit to me every once in a while. And one of the most humbling things I ever did was I was a good athlete, you know, a three-sport athlete, and all of a sudden I'm trying to pass and catch, you know, with a helmet on and having people banging on me while I was trying to do it. So uh, I started late, um, but, you know, by the time I was a senior, we had, you know, we had a really good team. We lost three games my senior year to West Genesee, twice in the regular season and once in the playoffs which tended to be, you know, the story of our, my career in, in high school. We losing to West Tennessee three times a year, um, but had the opportunity, ended up, I chose Penn over, came down to Penn um, versus Cornell. And uh, Penn got me, uh, you know, I, I love the city, you know, growing up in East Syracuse, it gave me a chance to do something different. Penn, I, I think a lot like Brown, Jamie, Penn, um, Penn was diverse. Penn had a lot of blue collar kids there at the time from you know from from a football standpoint I still had you know I still had thoughts that I could play football at that level and gave it a you know I had a cup of coffee with it wasn't good enough um they Penn really turned the corner in that time um so focused on lacrosse and uh if I could do it all over again I would go right back there it had an, you know it had an amazing impact on on my life and in the direction I went in and it it, it 
opened doors and created opportunities that I don't think I ever would have had if I went in, in, you know, in another direction. So those, those, you know, early years, those high school, my high school coaches, you know, really gave me some direction and some insight um, that, you know, that really had a, you know, put a kind of a stamp on what, you know, on my future. So you get to Penn and uh, coach Tony Siemens, the head coach at the time? No, it was Charlie Coker. Now I didn't just come to Penn. I showed up at Penn with, again, I'm from East Syracuse, right? I had a, a wallet and a chain. I had a leather jacket. Um, I had my work boots. Uh, it was uh, it was culture shock. I think my first road trip, I, I wore. Uh, if anyone can remember this, I wore a jean leisure suit and <laughs> thought it looked good. Uh, but it was um, it was Charlie Coker who recruited me. I just got into the Hall of Fame. Was a great player at Hopkins. He was a multi sport athlete also. Uh, my mother loved him in the recruiting process. He looked like Robert Redford. That's the the thing I remember most about it. Um, we had Charlie for my first two years, Coach Coker, and then Tony came in in my junior year. Awesome. And so what was it like to have, you know, two different, uh, you know, regimes that, that you had to get, you know, used to a new one? Two really different approaches. Charlie was a phenomenal player. Um, and I think that he would become frustrated with us sometimes because he was so good and so knowledgeable. And we were, um, we were more gritty and, and tough and not as skilled and didn't necessarily have the lacrosse IQ that, you know, that Charlie had. So I think there was some frustration. He was very much a, a, a disciplinarian. Um, and, you know, Tony came through the door and it was a completely different approach, right? Tony, uh, Tony was, was a guy who's, who, you know, was creative and was on the cutting edge and, and would innovate and find ways to use individual skill set, you know, you know, to, you know, to maximize their skills and find a role for them. Um, and again, put us in and did things that, that no one else had done. Matt, you know, first matchup man to man style matchup zone, um, you know, uh, motion offense where middies ended up behind the cage. It sounds all, you know, kind of routine right now, but he was the first person that did that full field, 10 man ride all the time, um, getting as many long poles as you could on the field. Uh, hanging on to the ball for long periods of time, the, you know, the, the old uh, UNC four corners offense, spreading the field out. And we were unbelievably successful. Um, we went, you know, those two teams won Ivy League titles and went to NCAA tournaments out of nowhere um, without necessarily deep rosters or at that time, you know, a lot of big names, uh, kind of with the same, you know, the same crew that we had um, the, the two years prior. and. You know, it was a, you know, it, to me, eventually it, it, I learned there's, there's, you know, certainly two different ways to, you know, to approach. Um, I think there's a nice combination, could it be a nice combination between what I learned from Coach Coker and what I learned from, you know, from Coach Seaman, a, a nice balance that, that I, you know, that, that I hope I, I, I used as I, particularly as I progressed as a coach. Um, but, you know, Tony, uh, Tony gave us an opportunity to look at the game in a completely different way. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I, I was fortunate to have, you know, and learn under two completely different kind of styles and regimes. Leo Paytas. Leo right. Paytas. Leo Paytas. They still call Brian Kelly at Calvert Hall still calls it a Leo cut when, when <laughs> it doesn't give and go. It's, it's all, you know, that was a Tony Seaman thing, right? You, I mean, you moved, you cut, you know, you were constantly putting pressure on the defense and Leo was fast. Uh, when Leo first came to Penn, 
Uh, he's a Jersey kid. He was an unbelievable athlete. He, him, and I remember John Shoemaker coming through the door. They were not very skilled at the time. They became skilled in college, and they became great scorers and great players. Um, but the one thing we, Tony did uh, for all of us is he developed us. He made us better players. Yeah. Um, we weren't put into a system and just expect to, uh, um, to play in that system. He made us better. He, he, uh, guys who played for him improved as, as lacrosse players. And every year they got better, you know, to the point where their senior year was tended to be the pinnacle and in, in the, in the peak for them. And, you know, that was, I, I learned a lot about development and breaking things down to the smallest part, you know, whether you're, you're, you're creating an offense or you're putting in your defense, you know, I learned a lot of that from, from Tony. I remember very well playing against Penn and having to go against that 10 man ride and hmm. the Penn zone and everybody kind of copied all that stuff too. And, um, and, I, and actually at Brown, I became really good friends with uh, Peter Smith. Yep. Uh, I used to come down to Penn once a year and have a good time with the boys in the fall. Uh, we'll keep those stories for another podcast. Uh, but a great crew, man. I loved, I loved hanging out with the Penn guys. And now I play on um, Plastic with John Canaris. Yeah. So, uh, and he's still got game. He does. He does. Unfortunately, he's still famous for Gary Gate jumping over him. <laughs> he is. But you know what? If you're going to be famous you know, in lacrosse, it's a good thing. He's going to be a trivia question forever. You know, the great thing about Tony, too, is he, as much as he looked like David Letterman, he had that personality, man. He was, yeah. he was always, you know, he always, he was funny. He had some of the greatest lines. I mean, we're, uh, God, we had played Syracuse in that Final Four. Yeah. Um, in that great game where Gary jumped over to Cage. We, we took him down to the last seconds and lost like 12-11. And uh, the next year we went to play Syracuse at the dome, outside the dome because Billy Graham was in the dome and the place was packed, Coin Field. I don't know if you remember, it's where I grew up playing and watching. Packed, I mean, people hanging from the rafters. And at the end of the first quarter, the score is 10 to one. They're blowing us out. It isn't even close. I remember hearing some, some guy comes out of the stage. It's a great game, you know, just from a Tony Seaman standpoint. Guy comes out of the stands and he comes to me literally in running the box. And he walks up, he says, can you get your guys on the bench to sit down? My family can't see the game. Well, my guys couldn't see the game either. And I, I don't know what to do, right? I said, you got to talk to him, right? I point over to Tony. And the guy walks up to Tony Seaman. Tony looks at me, he goes, Jimmy, is this one of your friends? And I'm like, no. He goes, this is for real? I'm like, yeah. And he says to the guy, he goes, I'll tell you what, buddy. You can stand right here where I'm standing. He goes, and I'll go sit with your family because it doesn't look so good from here. <laughs> And then, you know, later in the game, I mean, we are getting crushed. It's probably it, it's one of the worst beatings we've ever taken. It was probably 18 or 19 to two in the fourth quarter. And Tony Seaman says to the official, he goes, hey, he goes, can, 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 I, can you give me a flag for what I'm thinking? And the guy looks at him, he goes, he's like, no, coach, I can't give you a flag for what you're thinking. He goes, good, because I think you suck. <laughs> that's just the way he was he had he, he and as a coach I I, I you know I, later in my career you know I, I you start to learn not to take yourself in every minute of a game so seriously but he has you know he had unbelievable sideline I mean sometimes out of control but controlled um and there was there was one other time he said, the same game, he said to the official at the end of the game, he said, do you know how bad an official you are? And the guy put his hand on his flag. He looked at him. He said, how bad of an official am I, Coach Seaman? 
And Tony said, look at the scoreboard. It's 18 to two. You're as bad an official as I am a coach. And, you know, he kept us, he had a perspective. The next week, Jamie, we went out and beat North Carolina at North Carolina to make the NCAA tournament. Um, so, you know, his ability to, to keep things in perspective and, and, and bring us back, you know, from, and, and to get us to learn from our losses and our mistakes was a, you know, something I really took away from him, but he was, he was always fun to be around. No, still no doubt. And what an innovator that made the uh, NCAA final four, you know, at Penn, at uh, Hopkins and at Towson yeah. and always innovating all the way through, right through the nineties in all the stacks offenses he was running at the time. And, and uh, right into the Towson days where they just cranked up the pressure. So you must've learned a ton from him and that must've just really kind of set you on honestly on a path, you know, of being a coach. Well, it gave me such a large framework to work from, right? So many different ways to approach and attack and do things. Um, and what he did do, and, you know, I, I got better with this with age, but he always, the way we played, he made it fun. He made the zone fun. You know, we chased people all over the place. The 10-man the ride, you know, we were always, um, you know, we were always competing and in, 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 in playing at a high level, at a high rate of speed and, you know, it was, he made the game fun for us. Yeah. Well, it's good to see the new rules in the NCAA with 20 seconds, you know, kind of brought back the 10 man a little bit with 30 seconds. It was just maybe not worth it, but it is now. Yeah. There's no question. And again, so many one goal games and in so little separating teams that, you know, those extra possessions and opportunity to pick something up off a, you know, off a ride it can make a difference in the, in a season. No doubt. So, um, all right. So you graduate from Penn and, um, and what do you, uh, what do you do next? Uh, I graduate. I, we lose to, uh, we lose a playoff game on a Saturday. I had already graduated. Uh, I moved to Albany on Monday and I start working for the New York state assembly on Wednesday. I skipped the whole trip to Europe and all that. And, uh, we, uh, I start working for New York State Assembly with my, you know, with my goal being I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to spend this time uh, working for this, you know, for the state and preparing for my law boards. Um, literally graduate on Saturday and on, you know, Wednesday I, I start work and on Thursday I'm playing in a club game in the Capital Lacrosse League, which was a phenomenal league right at, you know, right at Albany State. There was a bar, the Cross the Street pub right across the street phenomenal players really um i'm covering this guy ken funier who was a you know who is a legend in my first uh you know my first game i go to the bar across the street after the game and this guy who is a complete character in lacrosse his name was tom harrington i don't know if you ever crossed ways with him green death was the head coach at hudson valley community college um i had met him i had spoken to him on the phone just happened to pick up tony seaman's phone when i was in his office he was in the office next door and uh, I pick up the phone and this guy says, is Tony Seaman in? I said, no, he's in the, you know, he's in the office next door. Can I take a message? And he said, you tell him green death called, right? And I'm, I'm a college senior. I'm a little bit of a wise ass. I said, excuse me. He says, green death. I'm like, I said, is you, you go by Mr. Death or is your first name green? What, you know, how do I, and uh, I tell Tony green death called and the Hudson Valley was, was, uh, you know, they, they're kind of, thing was they were called themselves green death. I don't know if they're the green terriers or whatever. He was a professor there. Um, just love lacrosse, took care of the guys, 
you know, was a coach who didn't have a ton of lacrosse knowledge, but was a guy who was always on the camp circuit. He was a character. We, you know, you just, you, you look at him and, and, you know, just one of those guys from those days, right? They, they were all over the place. And he asked me to help him out. And uh, it was an unbelievable experience because he gave me a ton of responsibility. You know, I was running sides of the ball. I was calling timeouts. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I was there for, uh, I spent a year in Albany, went back to Syracuse with a lobbyist, um, again, with, uh, still with my sights set on going to law school and get ready to sit for the boards. I coached two years of high school, or a year, high, year and a half of high school there, two seasons um, at uh, Cicero North Syracuse, where I worked with a great guy named Laddie Horrell, who I learned a ton from, and uh, Rick McCormick. I was at, uh, at Bishop Ludden. And now, so now I'm about three years out, I'm about 24 years old. And uh, I decided to write some, you know, back then you had to actually write letters on a typewriter to different colleges to see if I could get some type of graduate assistant job and help me with law school. And uh, so I sent all these letters out and I, I had a couple responses, not many. Uh, and then all of a sudden Tony Seaman calls and says, hey, GW is going to Franklin and Marshall. I know you've been coaching. Uh, I'd love to have you come back. I have a spot for you. Will you take it? And, uh, you know, I, I did and I never looked back. And it was an interesting take because I was, you know, I was making money. I had a job. I was, you know, in upstate New York. I was doing really, you know, I was doing fine. I was you know, thinking of going to law school. And uh, I had bartended through a lot of college in my times in, in Albany. I literally moved, all, moved to, to Penn. Do you remember the locker room you guys used to change in across the street in Hollenbeck? I lived in a, I lived in a, um, I lived in a training room up above that, literally just a training room. I had, uh, I had two lockers as a, uh, to hang my clothes in. I had a sink in my room, which was old training room sink. I used the gang showers. You know, my, I would go out at night and tell people I had a jacuzzi and I literally had the training room where you could put one leg in it. I bartended, uh, made $5,000 and, you know, I, I, I had a, I really I had a ball. I went to the final four in my first year there. 89, we made the playoffs again, uh, had a great year. And then, you know, at the age of 27, um, I, I get the Washington elite job, which is one of the, you know, premier jobs in the country at the time and is one of the you know youngest, if not the youngest head coach at that level. And, uh, you know, kind of from, you know, from where I started to there, Jamie, it was like, it, it was, you know, it, is, it, it was such a quick, and yeah. to be perfectly candid, when I got to WNL, I mean, I, I had a nice foundation being with Tony, but I had one mentor. Yeah. I did not have a long line. Right. And uh, I, you know, what I did do, though, is I worked, you know, I worked camp all summer, you know, 10 weeks. And back then, camps went from Sunday afternoon to Friday, and there were three sessions a day. And I can remember being in a room at the Rutgers camp where my roommates were Larry Glenn's from Lindbrook, who was a, you know, a legend. Um, Doc Doherty was in the same room with me, um, you know, from Garden City, another, you know, high school lacrosse legend. Stan Kowalski was in the top bunk, you know, above you know, a USA team player, another CW post coach. I mean, there were literally four of us and I had been, co I had coached in the final four you know, four of us in one dorm room at, at Rutgers. And those were, you know, there were about 10 camps a summer. And uh, I did that circuit. I learned so much, made so many 
contacts, um, you know, just the opportunity. I learned as much sitting at a bar with those guys talking lacrosse, sure. you know, as I did on the field. And that was really my education. And that's how I, you know, developed and, 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 and learned about, you know, the camp business. And I learned about coaching and I learned about, you know, how to, how to, how to manage teams and manage people just by hearing these stories from these, you know, these great coaches, the Cottles, the Tierneys, the Siemens, uh, the Zimmermans, the, you know, the, the, Hank Janzik's of the world, you know, they were all at these camps out in the field, just teaching. And it was, you know, the best coaches were, were, were out there just running sessions and doing, you know, doing, um, you know, just, just teaching everything from ground balls to stick work to, you know, it was, it was a different time, but that's, that's how I kind of grew in the sport. Honestly, it was such an amazing you know, incubator for a young coach because A, like you said, you got to be around all these people. B, you know, you were trying to impress people and you wanted to do a good job. And, and it was actually coaching. Whereas, you know, five, six, seven years later, it all turned into recruiting where you were just sitting there and, and not coaching that much. And and actually you tried to win the camp championship. Yes. And, you, and it, you actually like were given a group of people that you had to put together and you could practice so you know doing all of these things um i think i remember meeting you actually for the first time at the carolina camp in, in yeah. 1991. and those were you know those were 10 weeks by the way you, you spent as much as you made yes. right you're going out at night you're eating you're drinking you woke up for every session in the morning you never missed a session you were on time you took pride in that you never missed a session everybody was there yeah and i became a better coach because i watched people i learned and I learned about the business. So in the next couple of years, I was able to launch the MVP lacrosse camps was my first kind of, you know, venture in, in, in my first business opportunity. And I, I ran camps in California with Matt Hogan, who was my, my partner at the time up in Northern California and down in San Diego. We had a great 10 year run there. GW Mix and I ran camp first, literally probably the first camps in, in Austin and Houston, another 10 year run. Um, had a had a really good run of camps in you know at uh, at Washington and Lee and um, after you know had a really good you know 10 11 year run at, at maybe 12 year run at WNL we you know I, I really evolved and grew as a coach um, had you know had an unbelievable experience had a great AD who you know back in those days your ADs were former coaches he was a guy who was a baseball coach from Dartmouth. They developed you. They helped you. You could make mistakes and learn from them. Um, you know, it was a it was a good time. It was a great time to be a college coach. Yeah, it was, man. You know, um, I did a podcast with Lars, and he talked about his times with you. Uh, specifically, you know, he recalled the um, the invert defense with the pressure mm -hmm. um, that was uh, that he he. Uh, you know, the invert zone and the slides and the pressure and pressing on the adjacents. And he really credited you for the first, uh, for that innovation. Um, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your assistance that you had along the way and, and the ones like Lars that, you know, um, you, you learned from or some funny, uh, great stories about those guys in those times. Well, I had some great, I had some great assistants and they came there for nothing. They were, again, they were $5,000 jobs. They were interns. And um, so back then, and, and you remember this, Jamie, you had to do a lot of coaching yourself as the head coach. You, a lot of times you had to be offensive coordinator, defense coordinator, special teams. There wasn't as much, uh, you know, you, you, you got to be more of a coach then than, you know, than, 
maybe now, right? Now you have to be a little bit more of a CEO. But um, my first, one of my first assistants was a guy, Timmy Downs, um, who was in law school at the time. And uh, Timmy, uh, Timmy went on to be uh, the assistant associate commissioner of the, of the Patriot League. Uh, he played at Dartmouth. Uh, he's now the uh, athletic director of Westminster, Westminster School, but he was the AD at Caltech and uh, was the AD at um, uh, Emory. Uh, I had, uh, you know, Lars came in shortly thereafter. I met Lars in California uh, when we were running our camps out there. Obviously very bright. I knew Lars from Syracuse, and you know, growing up, uh, known, knew him from Brown and came in, was, you know, was 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 really intelligent. He tells a story. I told him the other day. So you you Google Lars Tiffany now, and it you know one of the like third stories down. It says Jim Stagnita made me cry. You know he it, it, it doesn't. You know he'll tell some people he got a PhD on the cross for me, but he'll tell other people I made him cry. I'm like Lars, you know you got to take that off. Um, you know I, I again I was twenty I was twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight years old. He's my assistant, and he says I, I took his. Um, uh, I, I took his title away as uh, as defensive coordinator. I'm not sure I ever gave him that title, uh, but you know he was uh, obviously he was very bright and had a great way about him. Unbelievably proud. I mean, there's no you know there's no question that if that was something he wanted to do, he was going to be good at it. He's you know he's got a little bit different approach, kind of like Tony had a different approach, and it really does work for him. He's authentic. Um, he really cares. He's creative. Uh, I had Greg Carroll, who was a longtime assistant at um, at Delaware, um, was was my assistant. Uh, Jim Rogalski, you know, who was my assistant then at Rutgers and was he's now at Michigan, was a head coach at Lafayette. Great, um, you know, a really good, uh, you know, really good coach guy. John uh, John Burgess, who went on to be an assistant coach at at, at both Penn and at uh, uh, at Franklin and Marshall. Uh, there was a pretty good, you know, pretty uh, good long line of of assistants for guys who started a Division three school and, and put in. I mean, Greg Carroll, you know, probably did 15 to 18 years in, in college assistant, Lars. So over 12 years, three or four of my guys went on to become, you know, really high-level coaches and, and, and really have an impact on the game. So, you know, during that period of time um, for a small school down in, in Virginia, uh, you know, we, we pumped out some, you know, some uh, some guys who uh, who made who made careers out of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and so then, uh, when and how did you end up making the move to Rutgers? It's an interesting it's interesting timing on this um, because the, the the person who got me the job, um, you know, who I, I credit with getting me the job was Gene Corrigan. Um, you know, who um, who obviously just passed away. Uh, Kevin and I were friends. Um, I had some opportunities. We had a really good run at WNL. So I, I had had some opportunities prior to that, but I really liked it there. Um, they cared about lacrosse. We could be successful. Uh, I was probably a little better at keeping things in perspective there than I was when I was at Rutgers. Uh, but, you know, when the time came where I felt like it was time, you know, um, to leave, it was as much about my family, you know, in a small town, um, education, my kids were getting a little bit older. I was looking for a little more culture and a little more opportunity for them. And our choice at that point was maybe to move to Charlottesville and commute. Uh, and the Rutgers thing had opened. And I, you know, I'd worked the camps. I always thought Rutgers had some phenomenal potential. 
and uh, Gene Corrigan was was close with uh, Bob Mulcahy, who had hired me at Rutgers, was the AD at the time. And I, I, Gene, there was some, you know, again, just like the W&L job, um, I, so, you know, I came out ahead in some amazing, comp, you know, against some amazing competition and people with, with much more experience, certainly, than I had had at the time. And it was, you know, it was similar at Rutgers, and I was able to, uh, you know, I, I got the Rutgers job, and, uh, you know, thanks to, you know, to Gene Corrigan. So talk a little bit about your uh, your times at Rutgers, um, yeah. some of the assistance that you had, and and maybe some stories that stick out on you know how you grew, um, both uh, as a coach, you know, uh, as a leader, things that you learned, uh, and even the move from Division three to Division one, and as well as the the sort of evolution of the sport. It was really cranking up at that time, where there was just you know I just I just think the it's, the the steep trajectory of how hard people were working and the things that they were doing was pretty exciting at the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, Rutgers was a, it was a roller coaster and I, I, I learned a lot. Um, it had a, you know, it had a huge impact on not my, you know, just my career, but you know, how I approach things. I, I had always, you know, I was lucky I'd been successful, you know, in some ways I kind of took that for granted. Um, my first year at, at Rutgers was a quick turnaround. Billy Durba left Rutgers to go to Loyola mid-year. Was this what, 2002 or something? Uh, 2000, yeah, 2002. 2001, 2002. Um, the year before that, Jamie, my last year at WNL, uh, I think 99, it was 99 or 2000, we lost to Salisbury in the semifinals in a one-goal game. It was a phenomenal game, and Salisbury went and dominated and won the final. I had my whole team back the next year. And our goal, you know, it, it, was, it was a national championship team. It was our chance to do that. And we rolled through the schedule. I mean, we beat, you know, Gettysburg was in the final that year. We, we handled them. We Roanoke, Washington College. Um, you know, nobody was close to us. Franklin and Marshall, we were really a great group of guys, great players, great culture. And um, we drive over the mountain and we have one of those bad days and we lose to Hampton Sydney by a goal. And that was the first year in Division Three. There were, there were no um, at-large bids. Every bid, bid was an automatic bid. You had to win your league. And I still had three games left. One was against Limestone, defending Division II champ. One was against VMI, so Division I school, right on, you know, literally connected campus, alumni weekends, huge game. And then we had another league game left. And there we are sitting, you know, semifinal team ranked in the top two in the country with no chance to go to the NCAA tournament. Nothing to play for in everybody's mind. Wow. And, uh, That's brutal. you know, one of my most difficult – you know, coach, I was, I was just, I felt sorry for me, you know, I felt sorry for the guys, but I felt sorry for me. And, uh, because this was, you know, this was it. And, um, it took a couple days to get over it, but I realized that if we tanked at that point, um, we would not have any impact on the lacrosse landscape. Uh, what, you know, my, it would be something that if we could, if we could salvage it, my players would look back on and we would, you know, we'd define success a little differently. And um, we, you know, we finished that out. We beat Limestone the next week, who won the Division II championship. Uh, we, we handled VMI. We beat Randolph-Macon. We ended up 13-1. and one, And we were number two in the country. And we didn't make the NCAA tournament. And it was a huge, how can one of the top two teams in the country not make the NCAA tournament? And the next year, they expanded a little bit. And they made sure that 
you know, that everybody, um, that they were at large bids and that would never happen again. And if you talk to the guys on that team to this day, you know, they will tell you that in a, it's still, you know, still hard to talk about, but, you know, to those guys, to that extent, um, it was one of the most successful seasons in, in the lessons that they learned and the resiliency that they gained his, you know, his, his, his supported and, and has been a lifetime lesson for them is something they draw upon. So, you know, I leave Rutgers, I leave that to go to Rutgers and um, first year at Rutgers, no fall. Uh, a lot of guys left in the transition because the hire took a while. I mean, Sean Morris was there who led, you know, who, who led UMass to the final four during that period of time. You know, there were some great players there that didn't stick around. Um, and we were young and we struggled. I think I was three and 13 that year. It was the first losing season I ever had as, as a head coach by far. I mean, the worst season I'd ever had was nine and three or 10 and four. Um, you know, and I had to, you know, I really, you know, had to try to look at it is, is, is how do you, you know, is the little wins, right? How do you, are we getting better? Are we learning how to do some things and, and learning from our, you know, learning from our losses and learning from our failures. And that next year with the same exact group of guys, um, we went 10 and three and top, you know, top eight in the country and made the NCAA tournament and won the ECAC and I was division one coach of the year. And, you know, it was a great year with the same exact guys, just a year older, a year more mature, a year more lessons under their belt. Um, you know, in, you know, that was, it, it was, we had two back-to-back -back great years, NCAA tournament years, you know, but I also, um, you know, faced some, uh, some challenges that were, you know, beyond my control that I hadn't anticipated. Um, you know, Rutgers was, was not fully funded and, um, Bob Mulcahy was, was moving towards full funding. Um, at the same time, Coach Shiano had come in and football was really, you know, it was at a different level and taking off. So now there are some budget challenges and, you know, something that I, I, I don't talk about, but, you know, I, I think it was a great learning experience for me and it's not necessarily public knowledge is, you know, we were hit with some NCA uh, issues that had, had taken place before my time there. And it, it greatly handcuffed our ability um, and cut us back significantly um, from a scholarship and a team uh, a team cap standpoint and um, you know for a number of years then we were playing with low to non-scholarship players in a in an in, in the ECAC and then the Big East you know playing one of the top schedules in the country Notre Dame, Syracuse, UMass, um, Georgetown, uh, Towson you know playing a very competitive schedule and, and really getting a lot out of guys and you know, but what I did then, and, and I look back at it now, is, you know, I, I pushed, you know, what I did, my, my, my response to that was I worked harder, not smarter. Uh, I pushed harder and was asking more from people who, you know, were not necessarily capable of, of doing more. And um, with that, I was getting diminishing returns. And, you know, I, I, I got caught up in you know, in the wins and losses in, in, in the bottom line, instead of kind of the process and the journey. Right. And, you know, I, I, I was, um, and it had an impact on every aspect of my life, right? It was, you know, everything from my, you know, my family life and how I interacted with them to, you know, how I, how I approached work every day. 
and you know what I what I had to do was step back and you know and I talk a lot about this in, in my business now with, with you know it's hard when you're at the top you're the only you know who do you turn to who do you talk to right. you know it, it's when you're when you sit at the top of an organization there's there's not a lot of people that you go to and uh, there certainly weren't a lot of Division One coaches who are going to have a lot of empathy for me at, at that point. Um, my wife was a, was a was a great you know as a as a coach and a and an athlete you know. But, you know, still it was, she had to live with me every day. You know, I had to look back at my why. Like, why did I get into this in the first place? And I look all the way back to that Hudson Valley story. I loved working with the guys. I loved being in the locker room. I loved developing people. I loved the challenge of waking up every Monday and saying, all right, I have a chance to fix this. And, you know, I, I kind of, I hit reset then. Um, in my last couple years at Rutgers, we were just turning it back around. Money was just starting to come back. Um, I was loyal to the guys who came in without scholarship money because uh, they came there and did something for me and there was not an expectation that they were going to win championships and compete at that level. And, you know, I, I felt like, you know, at that point, you know, I kind of, I, I became a, a better coach again and I focused on the things that were, you know, that were important, like the personal development and helping to resource people so they were successful in every aspect of their life. and. You know, then moving on to the professional ranks from there again, um, it gave me a completely different perspective. You know, I wish, I wish as a younger coach, I had had the experiences of being a father and had the experiences of, of, of dealing with the, the, the setbacks and the challenges that I did, you know, um, in, 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 un, in, in the way I was, you know, I dealt with and managed uh, professional players you know, when I went back to Penn for a couple years after that, I had a chance to go back. You know, my job there was was just keeping people happy. It was so much fun, you know, helping develop the players, you know, helping give Murph, you know, Coach Murphy some perspective, helping the assistants to develop and just using my, you know, my at that point, 25 years of experience um, to, you know, to, to support and, and resource everybody that was around me. You know, it was probably, you know, one of the most enjoyable coaching experiences I ever had because all I was doing was purely making people better and focusing on people as compared to all the other pieces of it. So, you know, while there were challenges at Rutgers and, and it was difficult um, at times, uh, it, it, you know, I really grew and developed from that experience. Yeah. I and that was the age of, you know, I was in my, you know, I was in my late forties and I was, and I still, you know, the beauty is we talk about all the time of what I, what I continue to do in both business and coaching and what you do in, in, in the direction you're going in is we get to continue to, to evolve and grow and learn and, and kind of reinvent ourselves in a lot of different ways, which is, you know, I don't think a lot of people have the, the opportunity to do that. Right. And stay involved in the sport we love. Yes. You know? Yep. Um, the other thing that was huge for you, though, along the way was that you were a pretty diligent and successful entrepreneur. And I think that that's part of the reason why you had flexibility to go take an assistant job at Penn or even to be a pro coach, uh, because it doesn't like pay all that much. Uh, and um, so, I mean, it's pretty cool. You've got we're going to talk a little bit more about where that's gone. But um, but, you know, for all the young coaches out there, I had to do the same thing. I mean, I looked at myself, I was getting paid 10 grand at Yale in my second or third year. And I was like, all right, <laughs> I need to make some more money somehow, but I want to coach. And so, you know, I did what you did, started doing camps and started kind of figuring it out. 
Um, but just talk a little bit about that because I'm sure there's a lot of coaches on here that that are like you know a little bit um, they get they get caught up in so much of the I think entrepreneurs um, it's a certain point you just kind of kind of go for it you know and um, you need to have a plan and you need to have some passion. Um, but I think sometimes people get too caught up in how many things they got to get going rather than just kind of doing. Did you feel that way at all? No, um, I didn't. When I, when I had my first camps, I, I mean, well, I think to understand the, the question, let me answer it and then you tell me if I, if I got it right. When I did my first camps, Jamie, I might have had eight to ten kids at the camp. You're and right. I did. And I ran it. People cancel those right now like it's nothing. Right. I, I ran it and I lost money. Um, in every place I started, California, Texas, WNL, my numbers were never bigger than 18. I'm flying people out. I'm bringing camp stores all over the place. I'm bringing Petro, Seaman, Mead, uh, Wade. I'm bringing great players all over the country and I'm paying them. And I'm, I'm, you know, probably losing money, but I'm building a foundation and I'm doing it right. All of each of those camps ended up growing up to about 250 to 280 kids before, um, you know, the, the, everyone else started to decide they could do the same thing. When I got to Rutgers, I was really fortunate, right? The camp situation there was unbelievable. I was creative. I, I provided, I always tried to provide a experience like no one else could provide. I always spent money to make money. You know, at Rutgers, I did things like I was getting five to 600 kids at camp, um, teaching camps. I had a 10 to one coach ratio. I did uh, coaches nights where I entertained the coaches. I had buses, chartered buses, take the kids from the dorms to the fields. Um, you know, we did, all, we did all the bells and whistles and all the extras for the kids, gave them sticks. I made sure I had the best coaches out there. I made sure that every coach had a schedule. Um, I made sure everything happened on time. I had, you know, I had security people in the dorms. I, I had people at the lunch, you know, making sure that everybody was, was safe. I, I, I did everything to a, to a different level. And then I saw the club thing start, and, and I almost feel like apologizing for this, but I saw the club thing starting on the horizon. I was doing these two weeks of, of Rutgers camp, which were like the old school camps. Um, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of time, but kids were learning. Um, but the responsibility became, you know, 600 kids ages 10 to 500 kids, 600 ages 10 to 18 in dorms with the travel and the airport and all that. It was, it was challenging. So while I was doing that over on Cook Campus, uh, the agricultural school, I did a little tournament. Uh, uh, I started the MVP. Um, I, I just added a, a, a little club tournament and I invited a couple coaches to come. And that first year I had 12 teams. Uh, the next year, uh, I had 24. Year three, I only did one week of the teaching camp, and I had 62 of the best club teams in the country on a campus with 12 fields, with hospitality tents, with parking. Greg Shiano used to look out the window and ask me how I was doing it. I had college coaches running every field. I, had, I was the first to have full rosters with every kid's number, every kid's position, every kid's contact information, booklets, schedule, uh, college and high school refs on every field. I had an assigner there. Uh, you brought, you were there with your teams. It was a high end, high, uh, high level of play. Um, I fed all the coaches breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They never had to leave. They had uh, catered tents and took them out for a coach's night. 
Um, I gave uh, bags to all the high, all the club coaches. I paid stipends um, for them being in the dorms. We had all dorm. And in year two, I had two weeks of 62 teams. Did away from the did away with the teaching camp. Um, I had the best, you know. Uh, I had the and and on the other campus, I had the ninth and tenth grade teams. This was just eleventh and twelfth because recruiting was still, you know, it was still taking place at the old at, at the later. So those teams over there just wanted to be there, and I charged them less because the only two colleges that ever went over there were, you know, Dom went there, and I think Bresh went over there from, you know, Carolina or Ohio State and Virginia. Uh, when I left Rutgers, I did them still, and, and I did them at high-level facilities, Taos in Delaware, you know, places where, you know, you were going to be – there was turf and there were lights and weather wasn't going to be an issue and the games would go on. You know, so I started that whole kind of thing. Now I look at it and it's like, you know, there's every weekend, there's multiple tournaments. So I, I, I'm proud of the fact that I started something. Um, I don't necessarily love where it went yeah. and how it's been utilized because, you know, I, I, I did it at a certain level. I was able to, to sell it to a group um, because I couldn't keep up with it the way these, these full-time people were doing it. Um, and that worked out really well, but I had a great 10 year run with that and then sold it and stayed involved for another five years with the organization I sold it to. Um, so it's fortunate in the timing and ability to do that. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I was the pioneer of, of that whole thing. Wow. GW Mix did his thing and, and yep. it with champ camp and those were the two. Yeah. Well, the, my, my point was, and I clearly didn't uh, articulate it very well is that, you had no idea where it was going to go, but you knew that you could get something started. Mm -hmm. It didn't really matter that it started with eight or 10 kids. Uh, it mattered that you just really followed your passion and went for it. And there's a lot of people that are afraid to go for it as an entrepreneur at all because they're afraid of failing or all the mistakes and they might spend, you know, you know, you don't need a business plan for how you're going to run MVP tournaments when you're going to get started on your first clinic in the fall. Right. 1994 or whatever which is i know the feeling i did the same thing i mean i started a clinic i did an attack and d clinic i was like wow i just made two thousand dollars that's yeah. like 20 percent of my annual you know <laughs> <laughs> um you know um but uh but all that stuff is is really cool and you had the foresight to kind of see the clubs going in that direction i mean remember when we all watched um the original clubs of the highest level was empire games all yeah. the way through the late 80s and 90s and into the 2000s yeah. it was like man it was like the best people cared there was a championship all the best kids it actually practiced together all summer the kids that were coming through those you know i mean all the great players that you can think of starting you know with like jim McAlevey in the late 80s all the way through mikey powell and beyond um, and then, you know, obviously clubs now, I mean, the, the teaching camp is gone. That's why you feel a little, little guilty that, but you were just, you were just evolving with, with the way the business was going. Well, I'm, the entrepreneurial thing is, is, you know, the way I look at it and, and have looked at it and, and the way I've looked at it in my last couple kind of ventures is, um, you know, I look, I look for a void to fill, right? Where is there, where is there some, some place where my expertise can fill a void and, and actually help, you know, help people in a way that is sustainable and it you know people look at this and go yeah i'm, I'm gonna have there's gonna be takeaways with this yeah. so the empire state games jamie is a great you know we used to meet there once here's so the one place all the coaches sat down together 
you know, there and maybe the Long Island playoffs um, and, and watched, you know, guys and could really have a chance to evaluate a lot of guys at one, one time together. And so the idea of, of the MVP tournaments was kind of that. Let's, let me get the best players and the best teams together and let, let me give them exposure to the best coaches. Let the, let the best coaches be able to just spend two days in one spot and evaluate. And I did it in the fall. And the reason I did it in the fall is because the only fall events, the, the big one was in Ithaca. Remember the seven on the turkey shoot? It was freezing. It was seven on seven. And I got fooled so many times evaluating kids in seven on seven play that I said, you know what? I don't need to have 50 teams, but I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a 10 on 10 MVP in the fall. I'm going to be the first one to do 10 on 10. And I ended up getting uh, 36 teams each day for two days. And it turned into a fall thing now. Awesome. So I just kept looking to fill voids and, 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 and try to, but also when I did that, provide value for the people attending on both sides, the coaches and the players and make it a high end experience that they're going to walk away from it and say, man, that was, that was worth it. I, I got my money's worth and the college coaches would be like, I, I, I spent two days and, and I came away with a lot. Yeah. And, and the level of thought and thoughtfulness you know, that you put into your business, I think is something to learn from too. I mean, all the details that you're talking about um, really, really are important. And so, you know, when you add passion and, and, and expertise on the teaching to that level of thoughtfulness, it's, it's a great recipe. Um, turning, the, uh, turning the page uh, onto coaching pro lacrosse. Um, I just want to talk about you know, I would like to talk a little bit about your, your times in, in Charlotte because those were probably formative years as a pro coach and then transitioning it into what an exciting year it was um, with the formation of the PLO. Well, actually, my, my, first, um, my first pro coaching experience was when I left Rutgers. Tony Seaman was the uh, general manager of the Denver Outlaws. Oh, that's right. And I spent two years as their head coach, and I loved it. I had an unbelievable group of guys. In fact. <laughs> You talk about it. This is where I'm always, uh, you know, for all those years, I was, I was right on the cusp. My first year there, we um, had a great year. Uh, great guys were playing in the semifinals in Boston. Um, we uh, were down 10 to 1 to the Lizards at halftime. And it's on, it's on uh, ESPN. And we go into the locker room and uh, – the guys, you know, they're men, right? They're screaming at each other, they're all upset, and they're making. And I, I'm like, hey, boys, relax, right? You know, ESPN's already, you know, they've already changed over to, you know, to the National Horseshoes competition. They don't, or let's just go out and focus on one play at a time. We came back, we won that game, 12-11. It was an unbelievable comeback. Remember that game? We, we used we used every ounce of, you know of energy that we had in the next day lost to the Bayhawks in the championship. So my next year, just like that WNL year, we go like 14 and up and I have the chance, uh, obviously I'm, we're not comparing, but you know, at that point from a press standpoint, the only other professional coach to go undefeated through a season and win a championship is Don Shula with the dolphins. And, uh, we go to, uh, we go to play in Philly where we played in the championship this year at the, uh, at the soccer stadium there. And, uh, you know, no one was close to us all year. It was like that WNL team. And we, you know, we lose in the, you know, we lose in the semifinal, don't even get to the final. Um, 
spent a year after that, I started a, another business called pregame, uh, which I ended up, um, incorporating with to trilogy lacrosse and i spent a year helping them incorporate and, and do some tournament development stuff with them um, but i started another business during that time uh helped out with the florida launch with stan ross who was my assistant in uh, in denver and then the uh mike serino who replaced me this this is a lacrosse world right the connections uh, you know mike serino who replaced me at wnl was the ad at limestone and was a coach at charlotte brought me in and i spent three years with with charlotte and uh, at that point, I was, you know, I had stepped away from, from the pro thing. Um, I was going to, I went, I, I worked at Penn in between for those couple years, and my son plays at Hopkins. And I, you know, when I left Rutgers, I swore that I was going to watch my kids play and I was going to be around from then out. So uh, I left Penn when my son went to, went to college. And uh, that's when I started up with Charlotte for those three years. And, uh, you know, had, had a good run. Um, and but had you know was starting again starting the business the mvp development group which uh, i know we'll discuss but between launching that and watching my son and i invested in an indoor facility where i do training uh it, it just was the travel was you know was getting to be a lot um and then you know when the pll called it was you know it was just you know they're entrepreneurs they're starting something i you know, I couldn't say no. It was a once in a lifetime to be a part of something like that starting up that really was going to be such a game changer in lacrosse, you know, based on my experience in the pro league and what they were going to do. It, it you know, it, it, it appeared to me from the outside like it was going to be a real professional coaching job and coaching opportunity. Um, so when they called me, I was done with, with pro coaching. And, uh, you know, I appreciate them, you know, because – uh, it was an unbelievable experience. Yeah. It's really amazing what uh, the Rabel brothers have done as far as just, you know, their expertise in, in marketing, um, mm. ethic. Talk about thoughtfulness. I mean, they are very, very thoughtful in, in the way they do. And I, I really think that, you know, I hope it works. I know it's working as far as us fans enjoying it. I hope it works business-wise too, because I really believe that it is making the sport better. Oh, I look, the recognition and it's, it, it, it's right now it, it's brought, you know, the most important demographic, right? It's, it's families, it's kids, you know, it's the TV exposure has been unbelievable. I have learned so much about uh, marketing and social media, you know, for my own business from them and how they approach things, not even mention the, you know, the, the coaching. To me, it was a real season of coaching. It was the ups and downs of college. It was yeah. dealing with the personalities and the professionals. Um, it, it was, you know, it was, it was a, you know, getting the guys to, to, you know, to regroup and bringing them back. It was the in-game coaching. It's their ability to be able to learn on the fly and execute things on the fly. Uh, having two great assistants who I had worked with in the past, um, it was, look, it was challenging. It was hard. It was tough to get there, but at the end it, it, it was, you know, it felt like we truly earned a championship and won a championship and had to, you know, had to really compete at a high level and overcome a lot of things to get there. Just like any other team does during a regular season. 
So you'd been through like, like a lot of coaches, you'd been through a lot of success. You've all, you'd also been through a couple completely yeah. heartbreaking losses. You guys go up big in the championship game. And then next thing you know, you're looking at, God darn it. I, you know, what's going through your head? How do you keep your composure? Uh, not composure, but your belief, you know, in how it was going to work or, or honestly, how did you feel? You know, well, I, the way I look compared to the way I feel, you know, are, are two different things. People, you know, you look so calm and, you know, I'm, I mean, we, we, it was a 9-2 lead. And that's been the story in that league all year, right? We had been on both sides of that. It, it can change in a heartbeat. And a couple bad bounces and the clock and the size of the field and the quality of players on both sides, it, it you know, things can change. And, uh, and they did. And the momentum was, you know, the momentum was, was not in our favor. Um, but we had been in four, three or four overtime games already in close games and had won them. So the fact that you had been in that situation and that situation is comfortable and we've been able to come back and do some things down the stretch. When we called that timeout after we won the faceoff with like 20 something seconds left in regulation, the, the huddle, I have, you know, I have alpha males, I have college coaches, um, our huddles are usually pretty good. I'll ask them, you know, get a little bit of input and then, you know, we'll, we'll go. And uh, the huddle was calm. The guys were, uh, they, they, they weren't panicked. They were comfortable. Um, the night before in practice, we had run this, we were working on this play where we just run a little mumbo off the backside and set a pick and it gives us a couple different options. And Drew Snyder had said, hey, coach, how about we throw a, a, a flip in here? instead instead of a pick we go to the wing something a little different I've done it I'm like sure so we do it you know looks great when we were up nine to two we came out of timeout I'm like hey why don't we you know why don't we throw this in there see if we can't put a nail in the coffin here and Drew says ah, why don't we hang on to it I'm like okay so we ran the play out of that and what's great about these guys that play had three options maybe four I didn't have to tell them what the options were they were going to read it and react. They knew there was a mumbo, right? We're going to put the ball in. Drew's a, you know, Drew's a seasoned vet, right? So Drew, with 26 seconds left, doesn't immediately run to the flip. You know, he runs 10 yards this way without panicking, rolls back, runs towards the flip, flips it to, uh, to Matt. Matt turns the corner, fundamentals, downhill, two shoulders down instead of running sideways. When he turns a corner, the defense, you know, they have to honor Mike Chanachuk. He's a great shooter. So nobody comes off the mumbo. They both play the mumbo. Brambo has half a step on, um, on the defender. He turns downhill. One of two things are going to happen, right? You're going uh, to leave the guy on the pipe and go to Rambo, or Rambo's going to shoot it. You know, Rambo shooting, it's probably option three. And he comes right down the middle of the field and sticks it. That was the look. You know, and it's – so, you know, what's great about coaching in that league? That is, yeah. right? Being able to do stuff like that, being able to execute like that, being able to truly in-game coach, having guys who will execute and believe and do their own – and do their job and, and, and embrace a role, um, which is hard when you have great players, right, for everyone to embrace a role, for them to believe and, you know, hey – would I have preferred to win, you know, 10 to three? Sure. But is winning like that? Was it great? Yeah. I mean, it was. And then, you know, we have the confidence guy like Joe Nardella who struggled in the fourth quarter. He always wins the overtime faceoff. He has all year. 
and you just have confidence he's going to do it, and he does it. And we, you know, we score a goal right after. So that was what the year was like. Every single game, Jamie, feels like a playoff game. The intensity, the, the, the uh, ups and downs, the, you know, the, the, it, it, it's just the momentum changes. It's, I mean, it's a great game to watch, and uh, it's a fun game to play. And, you know, there's, a, there's real coaching. Yeah, and it, it's also a shorter game, right? So it's like everything is magnified a little bit when you play with these 12-minute quarters. Um, it uh, makes it a better game, I mean, I, I think. I mean, I love the shorter field, uh, the shorter shot clock, and the shorter game. I think we're all smart. I, you know, you don't know what it was going to look like until you did it. And, again, credit to the Rables. We did it in camp we, uh, and, and, and all the leadership did in camp. We played with the rules a little bit, saw a few different things. Um, you know, and, and, and went with it and committed to it and learned a lot. You know, there's some coaching, some things that are different about it, you know, with a smaller field and, you know, and how you got to approach coaching and, and uh, you know, the way the game is, you know, the way you have to look at, you know, some, how to play offense, right? Skip lanes aren't there anymore like they used to be. You know, everything's tighter. It's harder to, you know, to do some of that stuff. Um, so we all learned as we went and, and, you know, became better at it as the season went on. So it was a great, again, it was a great experience in that way. I, I, I became a better coach and learned every week, which was, you know, yeah. at this point in my career is, is what, as much as you can hope for. No doubt. And it was just a great example of, you know, like, hey, you just prepare as hard as you can. All those times when you had some close losses, it wasn't like, you know, you didn't prepare hard. Of course, I'm sure you learned you know, uh, from things, but at the mo, but, but also, you know, if you, if you hang in there and, and keep the faith, you know, um, you're good, things are going to work out for you. And that was like a, a, just a great example. It's kind of why I was asking you how you were feeling because we've all been there in these close tight moments and you know, that it's out of your control right now. It's in the control of the players and sometimes everything you can do everything right. Um, and get uh, a bounce or not get a bounce. Um, even the, the game-winning goal, which was an amazing dodge by Matt Rambo. Um, he swims, you know, he's running towards X right-handed. He swims over, Landis is checked. Landis wiggles it in there. And, and Rambo, like, he, he thought he had dropped it for a second, it looked like. I mean, he, he was like, you know, when, when you swim it over against a righty and it's, it's kind of in there, and then all of a sudden he looks at it. Nope, it's in there. And then Landis freezes, and he's gone, and bang, game over. And it was just like, you know. Um, you know, the players, the players, obviously credit to all the players and Matt Rambo is incredible, but there's great players on all these teams, you know, and it's just, uh, it's well, like, to, to the players. And I can only speak to our players, Jamie, the thing they, they had to learn too. They had to learn how to be professionals again. Cause they, if they weren't playing indoor, they're on TV, right? They are on, they're a brand. And then there's a couple weeks off there, all-star game and a bye. guys are starting to travel. They're doing the other things that they do. They take a vacation. You know, and that's where we, you know, we regrouped in the, you know, because we did not handle the off weeks very well. And our guys, you know, as a whole, um, committed to being professionals and prepared themselves and stayed in shape and did the things they needed to do down the stretch. And we got better, you know, and that's what teams do. And, you know, any, any team with a championship season, at some point, there's a moment where you have to you know, you got to look at the why and you have to kind of recommit and you have to learn from what you, the mistakes you made. And we became more professional in our approach to everything we did at that point. And it really, you know, it impacted us down the stretch, which I'm really proud of for the guy's standpoint. I mean, that was, to me, that was one of the greatest accomplishments was how we were able to kind of hit the reset button. So transitioning into um, 
MVP development a couple of years ago, Stags, you came on my, one of my very first webinars I ever did um, with this new JM3 sports um, uh, content business. Did, you and JC did an, an, a really amazing presentation. Um, I, I love listening to it. I love learning about it. And, and those, you know, that was kind of the beginning of your journey in this uh, new business. Maybe you could tell us about it and, um, and how great it is to be able to, you know, learn, uh, learn about leadership, learn from uh, JC, learn from all your experiences as uh, continuing in the coaching world. So completely different, um, completely different entrepreneurial approach, right? Before I was always in my comfort level, right? I know lacrosse. I don't know a lot, but I do know lacrosse and uh, I knew camps. I knew tournaments. Uh, I knew that there was a void because of my years of, of, you know, again, not a lot of mentors. I, I would use uh, leadership consultants and sports psychologists and, time management people and have keynotes come in, but it was never sustainable. It was always, they'd spend a day with me, a day and a half, give me some insights, never made it operational. We're never there just to help me to continue to evolve and, and put, into, put into practice their thoughts and their actions. So when I, left, um, when I left Penn, I had two things on my plate, the indoor training facility, and which I thought could go hand in hand with the developmental piece. And I started, I built, initially built out a team. It's called still a business that I, uh, I lead. It's called uh, Complete Athlete 360. I have a, a leadership team. I have a um, sports psychology team. Uh, I have an education team and a health and wellness team. So it's, they can go in and they can deploy in, as one unit and, and be able to um, develop in, in a holistic way and answer and help anyone in any area of need. Right. But my goal with this and my model was that we would engage and partner with the people we're working with. JC was the head of my leadership team and was working with another consulting group at the time. So three years ago, after after doing some of this stuff for me, JC approached me, and said, Jim, you have 30 something years of college experience. I always wondered how you consult. Like, what's in a consultant? How do you do this? He said, let me help you put your experience to work. I will help you to consult. He said, I have corporate clients who would rather hear from a, a lifetime pro and college coach um, than they would a military guy. We have different arenas. I think we could really do some great things together. So three years ago, uh, I shadow him for six months. Um, every issue, every challenge, be it corporate, professional, college, faculty, student, you know, uh, teachers, faculty, it's all situations that I've been in and, and have managed either right or wrong throughout my career. I just needed to learn how to, um, how to put my experience to use for them. And three years later, you know, the MVP development group, JC and I uh, in the MVP development group focus on professional and corporate mostly. And with Complete Athlete 360, we do a lot of uh, uh, mid-major college, high school, um, student, faculty, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but we started small. We were driving all over the country. We were driving from Virginia to Maryland to Long Island in two-day periods to do high schools. And I remember JC saying, we're going to look back at this and laugh someday, right, Stags? Because I'm the only one started business before. I said, sure, yeah, we will. We will. Now, you know, three years later, um, we're working with professional teams. Uh, we're working with, uh, with corporations. Um, we're, uh, you know, we still do 
um, some high school stuff and, and college stuff. Uh, we try to do it in conjunction with, you know, when we're in town to do corporate and uh, we're doing high level things that are focused on creating, you know, helping people create culture, helping leaders to, you know, to evolve, creating high performing um, organizations, uh, effective communication, creating resiliency. Um, we, we can come in as practitioners, people who've actually, you know, created cultures and built teams and managed, um, you know, manage change and, and, and manage failure. Uh, we can come in from a, from an area of, of, of experience. And what we do is we engage with our clients, most of our clients, anywhere from a quarter to a half a year to full seasons. Um, so we, you know, we truly become part of their organization and help them to make operational and assist them in reaching their, you know, their aspirations and their goals. And it's really, um, you know, we, we are, we're fulfilling a need in a space that there's a lot of people who have studied leadership and, and, but have not actually led um, and been in that, you know, sat in that seat. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, it's really taken off in the last couple of years. We, we don't have a lot of clients because when we do have a, a partner, we engage with them over an extended period of time, but had the opportunity to work with, you know, with a lot of different, really cool people from, you know, we just worked with a group that was, you know, the leadership was, um, you know, was, was, were in their forties, but their whole staff were millennials and they were the most fun in, uh, interesting and uh, you know excited to develop a group that you know that, that we've worked with we've worked with and again being around professional teams and professional coaches is you know is great it's fun and there you know what what I do find is is the people who really um, this is important to uh, these professional athletes and these college athletes and coaches they just want to get better and they, they want to know how they can get better and they're, they're constantly seeking what we've talked about, you know, the opportunity to continue to learn and, and be the best that reach, reach their potential and be the best that they possibly can in their, you know, in their area. You made a couple of comments through the course of this podcast, like coaches now have to be more like a CEO than, than just a, a position coach and you um, coach the side of the ball. And you also mentioned, you know, it's a little lonely at the top, you know, who do you talk to? Um, those stick out to me as some really important reasons why people engage with you. Yes. Um, you know, no question. We, you know, we work with senior leadership and we help senior leaders. We believe that, you know, the people kind of create the culture and, and it's about the people. If your people in your organization, the people on your team believe you have your, their best interest in mind and that you care about them, they will do anything for you. Right. If they buy in to, and it's just like a team, right. If they buy in, um, to a shared outcome, they'll do whatever it takes for that team to be successful. Um, it's not just about punching a card and going in and doing your job. They'll care about, you know, the people, person to the left of them and the person to the right of them. We help leaders to, to communicate and resource their people. Um, we help leaders to do, you know, what, what leaders should be doing. And, you know, leaders should only do what leaders can do, you know, the important things and create trust in, um, in between the leadership and their people and you know what you want to do as a coach what you want to do as a CEO what you want to do as a manager or a leader is you want to resource your people and you want to create people who eventually can do your job right that's how you're going to be judged at the end of the day you know is, is by the people that you know that you've developed 
So it never looks the same in any group we walk into. We don't assume we know the problems. We do a lot of assessment and observation um, before we make recommendations on, on how to approach things, which is unique. You know, people say, how do you do it? What's your template? You know, there isn't one. We, we first and foremost, we don't assume we know the problem. Too many people come in and assume they knew what my challenges and issues were. In fact, a lot of the times the things that I assumed were, my, were the root of my issues and challenges, they weren't. It was something completely different. So um, it, it's really been, uh, you know, and I get better at it every week and every, you know, every opportunity and I learn. So it, it's, it's, been a, uh, it, it's been a great experience and a different experience from a, you know, from a business standpoint for me. It's, it's got to be kind of a, a really um, a, a fun and um, a journey for with each group that you're with because you're yep. like right along for the ride with them as a part of a team. And, um, you know, that's there's nothing like being on a team. Well, it's like coaching, right? It's why did we get in, in the beginning? Because we we like to help people to reach their potential, make them better. Uh, you can see uh, this can be sustainable. You can see results from this, some short term, some long term. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, like you said, it, it's the, the opportunity to, to actually have an impact is why we've done the things that we've done throughout our career. Right. Yeah. And it's hard to be great at everything. And, and, and that's when you when you get to be a division one head coach or a leader in business or an entrepreneur. A lot of times your expertise is kind of what got you there, but you haven't had the time or ability to study the development of culture, which ends up really being the most important thing. And that that's really, you know, what to me, what makes it so obvious that no matter who you are, this is what your focus needs to be. Well, in a nutshell, and here's a little bit of, uh, I won't charge for this, but, you know, in a nutshell, we, sports, you know, we all know teams that, that have unbelievable talent and a toxic culture that underachieve. We all know teams that have average to good talent that have a terrific culture and they, they reach levels that no one, you know, can expect that they would reach, right? Most organizations have mission statements and they have values, you know, and they have vision. You know, mission is what you do. Vision is how you do it and where you're going with it. Values to us are only words unless they're in context. Um, but not many teams have deliberate cultures and culture is who you are. Right. So if you don't know who you are, you're bringing together groups of people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds. Yet they don't have a guideline for how do you interact within this organization? How do you conduct your business within this organization? You know, who are you? And when they understand who they are and what the expectations are of them and each other within the organization, now they know how to function as a, as a you know, as, as a group together and, and make each other better. And, you know, that's kind of where we start, right, is, is uh, you know, trying to understand what a culture is like right now and then, you know, allowing the people to give us the information um, so we can develop a culture, you know, that the people want and then the leaders, you know, the leaders drive that. So cool. Yeah. All right, last question. You have a new business coming out uh, this summer. Tell us about it. Yeah, I jumped back in. Um, I finished my... Uh, I told you the MVP tournaments I had sold and my, um, my uh, non-competes were over. Uh, and you know what? I just, I, I, I jumped back in and I jumped back in in a way that I thought there was a void to fill. So with recruiting being later, I spent some time on the, a lot of time on the field. A lot of my players are college coaches and I watch how they interact and how well they coach. 
And it made me think about the old days when we would stand out on the field all those hours. So I said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create two events that go back to back, that go hand in hand, that, that are going to, you know, to, to have value. The first one is for rising eighth and rising ninth graders. I've been putting out the staff. I have a staff right now of 12 Division I coaches, um, 12 of the top 24 colleges in the country, a couple head coaches, all full-time assistants. And they are going in, and Joe Nardella, who is a college coach and, you know, is one of the best face-off men in the country and runs a face-off factory. And, you know, so I have PLL players who are college coaches. I have college coaches, and they're going to spend, you know, two and a half days on the field teaching high-level fundamentals, high-level skills, uh, high-level concepts to guys who are getting ready and are on the verge of being in the recruiting process, guys who aspire to play at the next level. So the Spotlight Advanced Developmental Camp is for 60 uh, 2024s and 60 2025s who want to come and have an opportunity to really um, learn from the best coaches and, and create a, a solid foundation and have in, in develop some skills and, and some insights into, into college um, recruiting and, and, and what it's going to take to play at the next level and have access to these college coaches, you know, early um, in their career. Now I have those college coaches on site. It's at Towson University. And right now we're in the process of inviting players to the Spotlight, you know, 88 Invitational. Uh, and that is 88 uh, 2022s and 88 2023s by position. And they're going to play on two fields at Towson. They're going to spend a full, you know, they're going to have three full sessions of being coached by former college coaches and PLL coaches to actually put them into offensive sets and defensive sets. And, and, and so when they go out there and they play, they're going to play within a system in front of all of these college coaches who have an opportunity to get a great evaluation of them in a small venue on two fields where they're only looking at a specific number of players done at a really high and elite level, um, just like the MVP tournaments were. So at the end of the day, what, I'm, what, what we're doing here is trying to offer a ton of value to the college coaches, um, to the players who are, uh, who are there um, to be seen. Because again, two, two fields, um, they're going to have great exposure. And then we're, you know, we're giving college coaches an opportunity to do what they love the most and don't get to do as much as to coach. And we're giving these young athletes an opportunity to be exposed to some of the best coaches in the country and some of the best teaching in the country. So these go back to back. Coaches are there to coach. And then that, that base of 12 coaches stays to evaluate, plus all the other coaches across the country are going to be, about, are going to be brought in to, uh, or invited to come in and evaluate. It's awesome. Love it. It's needed. And the reason why is because, you know, throwing a bunch of kids together is, that are really good is, is great and fun, but getting them organized and getting them playing team lacrosse on, on both sides of the ball um, with real experienced coaches um, as opposed to the roll the ball out model um, makes a huge difference. And it will make people happy. Um, it will make uh, the, the players, the parents, and the coaches happy. There's nothing more frustrating than being a coach and wanting to watch a defenseman and then having that attackman that he's guarding um, never get to go to the rack because the wing never clears through. You know, you got to be able to have some, some, you know, it, it works on all sides of the ball. And if, when you're really thoughtful like that, it can make a huge difference. So Stags, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and share your journey, your entrepreneurship, your leadership concepts, stories, and uh, your new endeavors. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Jamie. Look forward to seeing you soon. All right, Stags. Take care, buddy. All right. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to my podcasts. I've had so much fun doing them. I only wish that I'd started recording my lacrosse conversations like 25 or 30 years ago. Now, if you like these podcasts, you will love the content I've created in the JM3 coaches training programs and the academies. Whether you're a coach or a player or a parent, there's so much great information for you guys. I've done this content for men's lacrosse and women's lacrosse, for box lacrosse, field lacrosse, youth lacrosse. And the great news is I've created a seven day free trial. So if you're tired of endlessly searching the internet for great content, just go to www.jm3sports.com slash free trial. And you can get access to all of the content I've created for free for seven days. Trust me, when you take a look at it, you're gonna want more. Almost everybody gets hooked.